Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this lecture will be a series of, I don't know, five or six uh, lectures over the next couple weeks on CT scanning state-of-the-art, and uh, this was something I presented in great part at our annual course, which was in February 2008 in Orlando. That was our 24th annual CT course. Our 25th anniversary course will be next year, February 13 to 16, 2009, at the uh, Disney Yacht Club, so hopefully you'll make it there. and. At that point, I'll tell you everything there is to know about CT 2009. One of the things I had as meeting goals, and I think I'm going to leave the meeting goals up there and call them more like lecture goals, was I want to bring everybody up to date on the current state of the art of CT, not so much just from a technology perspective, but from a best practices perspective. I want to help solve problems that we face on a daily basis. So we want to learn some new skills or enhance developing skills. And you want to look at some issues. Now, many of these issues, well, what we addressed at the meeting, you know, should I be doing coronary CTA in my practice? And when should you do cardiac CT? And how do you do it? And what are its limitations? And what about current role of HRCT? And how do we deal with the small nodules or the medium-sized nodules? And what about cardiac CT in the ER? And what about PE studies? Do you need to do runoffs? What about PET-CT? When do you use that? What do you do with incidental pancreatic lesions or incidental adrenal lesions or incidental liver lesions? How do we deal with that? It's something we see every day. Do I need to learn new things like virtual colonoscopy? And if so, how do I do it? What about CT angiography? What about protocols? What's the best protocol for yada 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 so those are some of the things we looked at in the meeting I think the reason I'm repeating it here and I'm not going to be able to go into all of these at least in this lecture is to make the point very clearly to you that CT is changing CT is dynamic CT is exciting and CT creates new opportunities it also creates new challenges and new problems and we're going to address all of these now one of the things I've learned the last few months, or at least learned from an approach from a different company, is a company called Harris Corporation that's in Florida. And in February 2008, they announced that they were getting into medicine. And Harris is a big defense contractor. They also run the FAA. They also will run the 2010 census. They're big management company. They're big high-tech um, company but what they focus on is intelligence they focus on data and security and data transmission and data access many things whether it's for broadcasting whether it's for defense and now for medicine and one of the points they make is what we do in radiology really is asset management we deal with important assets we deal with data data could be CT could be MR could be ultrasound could be plain films but we have CT data we need to get that data, do it correctly, do the best CT scan protocols to acquire the best data. Once we have that data, we need to then interpret the data correctly. Once we interpret the data correctly, we need to get that information to the right person, the referring clinician. We need to make sure they get it in a way that they can use it, whether it's on uh, a PAC system, whether it's on a cell phone, whatever it might be. And we need to make sure that's at the point of care because all of the data acquisition we do, all of the interpreting we do, is of zero value unless it changes patient care and patient management. And I think what's exciting about this approach is really that it energizes radiology. In this era where so much is RVUs per FTE or Nighthawks or doing less, um, we're trying to say that radiology is super critical. We need to be 
on top of things. It's exciting and it's a rapid turnaround affecting patient care. I'm on the RSNA's Committee for Radiology Information and one of the points they've made is no matter how hard we try, no one even knows what a radiologist is. You know, my grandmother thought a radiologist was someone who fixed radios. Well, the fact is, that's probably what most people actually think. And I think if people would understand how we approach data, it might make a big difference. Well, anyway, that's a discussion maybe for a, a podcast another day. But we talk about CT and we talk about evolution. We're going from 4 to 16 to 64 to 128, 256, 320, RSNA 2008, 512. Massive changes. One x-ray tube, two x-ray tubes, maybe four x-ray tubes. The thing is, what we're talking about is faster scanning. We're talking about thinner sections, higher spatial resolution, and we talk about large volumes of data. And we could talk about technology many ways, from detectors to the uh, x-ray tubes to the number of x-ray tubes, number of scanners, speed of rotation. We could talk about many different things, but we have to know some core basic things. So most of us have 64 slice scanners, understanding the classic protocols, understanding how we deal with the spatial resolution under 0.4 millimeters and a classic temporal resolution of about 155 milliseconds. We recognize that. We also recognize how we deal with um, the newer scanners, the dual source scanners with two x-ray tubes, where now we have double the patient's uh, temporal resolution. So now we're down to approximately 83 milliseconds. So for example, we do cardiacs without beta blockers because we're able to scan fast enough basically for any heart rate into the 90s. So there's many things indeed we can look at. Now in saying that, how you do studies is dependent on your scanner. And cardiac's the best example. Here's a dual source. It's easy to do a study with a high heart rate. Regular spiral, 64, you can't do it. And things will change, as I mentioned, many different detector arrays, high-res versus standard detection. Um, you can argue which company is going to do best. I don't know the answer right now. If I knew, I wouldn't tell you. Maybe I would tell you. But the point is, we have to look at some things. Well, are more detectors the answer? Well, not exactly. You can put many detectors in the scanner, but that's not going to be the answer alone. And more x-ray tubes, that may make it faster, but alone that's not the answer. And what about detector arrays? Well, I think we can, but there are many things to consider. Like, for example, what's more important? Temporal resolution or spatial resolution? Well, depending on the application. But the truth is, when you ask a radiologist, you ask me, I say, I want more temporal and I want more spatial. I want both. And we know so much of what we do in CT is dependent on the hardware and software. Dual energy, perfusion CT, CAD, tumor biometrics are all again possible because of new technologies. So technology drives what we can do, and that indeed is very exciting. Now, amongst all this excitement, we need to take a step back because there are two issues that we all need to face on a daily basis that are problematic. And there's only two problematic issues we have. One is radiation. And what about radiation dose from CT? You know the articles. This article from Einstein in JAMA this summer, lifetime cancer risk estimates for cardiac CT, 1 in 140 for a 20-year-old to 1 in 32.61 for an 80-year-old. That's an issue. We need to understand that. And then, of course, when they spoke about this issue, 
uh, over the summer. Again, it was a simulation model. It had a splash, but not as much as the splash in the New England Journal of Medicine that happened RSNA week. Talking about radiation exposure, again, simulation model, but in this article they said that 2% of all cancers in the U.S. are caused by CT, or might be caused by CT. No one has ever gotten cancer from a CT scan, but these articles kind of confuse patients, confuse the entire issue. I think it's very important to understand that we need to minimize radiation dose. And that's where scanning technology really has to be driven. Not just higher temporal resolution or higher spatial resolution, but low dose. Low dose approaching a chest x-ray. So it's very critical we really focus on that. Now we do have, it's not just a CT issue. Now everything has been made to focus on CT. And CT of course is important because it's the number one source of radiation. But you realize, of course, that the same issues uh, do affect nuclear medicine studies. Nuclear studies, th thallium stress tests, were higher than even the worst cardiac CT. So again, we are making strides now with prospective gated. GE shows under 3 millisieverts instead of 15. That's an 80% decrease. But again, we got to do better. We know there are strategies from x-ray beam filtration to collimation to uh, peak voltage optimization, noise reduction algorithms, and this article by Christy McCullough nicely defines many of these issues. But the point is we need to make sure these things are built into the scanners. Dual source does reduce dose somewhat, that's one application, 10%, and so that's been shown. Now initially it was felt to be a factor of two, but that's not been our experience, it's more like about 10%. And I mentioned a few moments ago in cardiac, going to a pulsing, going to a step and shoot can decrease dose by 80%. So we need to be aware and use many of these techniques. We need to be aware of dose reduction strategies. Well, the first strategy is do the right study on the right patient. Don't do a study that's not going to be helpful. And do the study correct the first time. The number one reason in my mind why patients get increased radiation dose, or one of the main reasons, is the study is done poorly. Design protocols that are correct for the right patient, for the right study, for the right application, and make sure you interpret the studies correctly. So you really need to get it right the first time. You get it right the first time, there is no second study. Second thing is contrast. How do we minimize the risk for contrast? Now, most of us don't see issues with contrast. Occasionally someone gets a reaction, but typically it happens days later. We talk about contrast-induced nephropathy, which occurs in about 3% of the population. Articles show between 0 and 20%. Again, it depends on the population you look at. But it's the third most common cause of hospital-acquired renal failure. 11% of cases of hospital-acquired renal insufficiency can be attributed to SIN. And there's no doubt, as we do more and more sophisticated studies, we're using more contrast, doing more exams, and so SIN will surely be potentially increasing. Now, how do you describe SIN? It's an impairment in renal function occurring within three days after administration of contrast in the absence of alternative explanations. And it's typically defined as an increase in creatinine from a baseline of greater than 25% or 0.5 milligrams. And timing, uh, typically you want to make sure it's at least three days out or up to three days out because that's typically the peak of SIN. You can see SIN earlier, you can see within one or two days because of decreased GFR, but that's not always the situation. And so when you look at articles that are published, make sure that they measure the 
uh, creatinines at the same point or multiple points, but not just at day one. Day one will give you an incorrect answer, for example. Now, sin is an issue. Most patients who get a bump in creatinine go back to normal, but for other patients, particularly sicker patients, it can result in a delay in discharge, it can result in permanent kidney damage, it can result in the need for dialysis, and it can result in increased patient mortality. Now, who are the patients at risk? Well, the classic thing is diabetics. Diabetics either with or without pre-existing renal impairment, with pre-existing renal issues, even more so, but even without, diabetics are the highest risk factors. Hydration is critical. Patients who are dehydrated get a higher incidence of sin. Remember the old days we'd keep people NPO after midnight? That was crazy. Hydrate the patients. Patients in failure, patients with myeloma, older patients, percentage-wise, are at increased risk, patients who are on certain medications, and newly identified hypertension and metabolic syndrome. And the more factors you have, the more risk factors you have, the more the likelihood of patient developing sin. Now there are strategies being developed. Typically now as we look at dividing patients into three different GFRs, GFR over 60, you want to basically do good clinical practice, you want to choose the right contrast media but those are low risk patients, GFRs 30 to 59, you want to do a number of things. You might consider giving the patient hydration if they're an inpatient. What contrast media are you giving? Are you using isoosmolar? Try to limit the volume of contrast. Under 100 ml or 100 ml or less, there's less issues. Good thing about 64 slides, we can use smaller volumes. Should you pre-medicate patients with pharmacologic treatment? We can talk about that, but should you do bicarbon patients? And of course, patients with, creat with low creatinines or GFRs under 30, those patients are at higher risk. Again, should you have a, a nephrology consult? How should you manage those patients? Those are all very important things and you need to develop a strategy. So some strategies might be hydration, avoid nephrotoxic drugs, possible prophylactic pharmacologic intervention, minimize the volume of contrast and choose the correct agent. So some comments, volume expansion, giving oral fluids is not as good as giving IV fluids. We give oral fluids routinely it's hard to give six hours of IV fluids in the, in the um, outpatient setting. For inpatients, it's easy enough to do. Use 0.9 saline if you're going to do it. Bicarb, there are three articles that are very positive. Each of the articles shows a dramatic reduction in sin with bicarb. Again, bicarb, you need to typically be an inpatient, but again, it has excellent results, and it's a way of protecting the kidney. People used N-acetylcysteine. Some articles were positive, some were negative. Most are in between, and the general conclusion now is N-acetylcysteine is not what you want to be using. We talk about volumes of contrast. This brings up the issue of multiple studies in short periods of time, even 72 hours some people consider, but surely in 24 hours. And it's a volume issue. If you do two studies and each get 140 ml of contrast, that's 280. You have to be very careful. So if you're ordering a study, make sure you scan all the body parts you need Make sure you're thinking about everything. Now, in terms of contrast agent, classic articles, nephric study, comparing uh, the use of an isoosmolar agent, iodixanol or visipake with a non-isoosmolar agent in high-risk diabetic patients, and the results in this study at day three, which is the key day, critically better results, less nephrotoxicity in patients who are on uh, visipake, 
and even on secondary endpoints, Visipake was substantially better. So selection of an isoosmolar contrast agent. There are many articles that address this. There's one article, the CARE article, a totally different population. The study was done also totally different in terms of timing of measuring uh, the patient's creatinine. But the point is, it's been shown time and time again, isoosmolar agents have less issues. And now organizations, the American Heart Association has come out with their guidelines. Unstable patients use isoosmolar agents. That's level evidence one. And there are many different organizations now that are also recommending uh, the use of isoosmolar agents. So again, very, very important. Hopkins, what do we do? Creatinine 17 or under, we use Omni 350. Over 1.8, go to Visi. Patients who are diabetics, history of renal disease, cardiac CT, P studies, older patients, oldest than 65, PEDS patients, we use Visipake, and that's our rule. So I've now addressed the two most critical issues we face in terms of the negative side of CT, radiation dose and contrast, and it's something we all need to deal with and we need to be aware of. So with that, let's get back to the positive side of the street, and now let's talk about the advantages of 64-slice CT. But before we do that, why don't we take a break, get a coffee or soda, and we'll come right back. Thanks a lot.